0: From 2Keto LLC, it's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. This week, we're talking about sugar strategies for cutting back. The Obesity Code Podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Today's show centers around IDM patient Annette Deemers, who, like most people, understood that sugar made her feel bad, but didn't really know how much sugar In all its forms, she was really eating.
1: It's been part of our family for a long time. We've got a a big family. There's my two um, parents and then there's five kids. Eating and cooking is kind of a sport in our family. So I think I've had a weight problem most of my life. And, uh, you know, all the old ways of dealing with it... um, I tried everything and nothing was really working for me. And I knew it wasn't working for me, not just like not losing weight, but also not, you know, like having blood sugar problems. You kind of inherently know, you know, having the sandwich that Weight Watchers is telling you to have, you know, at lunchtime is actually not going to cut it. You have you're unwell in the afternoon after you take carbs like that.
0: Even though she wasn't yet considered pre-diabetic, Annette had definitely entered the race she could physically feel when her blood sugar got too high.
2: You know, we all accept that diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. I mean, you, you can't metabolize carbohydrate, And yet, we continually recommend a diet full of carbohydrates. And, you know, as, as my, you know, my kids would say, you know, duh. That's
0: Dr. Peter Bruckner, one of the most experienced sports doctors in Australia. He's been the team doctor for their national cricket and Olympic teams, as well as the team doctor for a Liverpool football club in the English Premier League.
2: It's a sad reflection on myself and my fellow medicos that we haven't really thought this through at all. You know, it just does not make any sense at all. you know, before insulin came on the scene, back in, you know, back in 1920-odd, uh, you know, the management of, of diabetes was a low-carbohydrate diet, and uh, and by and large, you know, that was reasonably successful. You know, obviously there were, you know, insulin, I'm not saying insulin's been wonderful, especially for type 1 diabetics, it saved it saved lives. But um, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you can just have as much carbohydrate as you like and then just have more and more insulin, because we know that that results uh, in a lot of fluctuations in in blood uh, glucose levels and that's really the seems to be the issue that uh, the difference you talk to both type 1 and type 2 diabetics who um, move from a high carbohydrate to a low carbohydrate diet they, uh, their blood sugar levels just level out
0: For many years Annette didn't even try to address her issues. She didn't have a lot of what she understood to be health problems and about 20 years ago when she was in university, she started trying to figure it out. She mostly did low-fat dieting and zero-fat dieting. Carbs weren't even on the radar. And then, one day at work...
1: There was a time in the mid-90s when I was at at a workplace where I would have like a Pepsi or something like that at lunchtime and I would be physically ill in the afternoon, like just with the shakes kind of thing. And I talked to a doctor one time about it and they said, oh, that's hypoglycemia, just don't eat any sugar, carbs or
3: whatever. So reactive hypoglycemia is a disease uh, where the blood sugar falls sometimes to very low levels. Uh, particularly after a meal.
0: And that, of course, is Dr. Jason Fung, co-founder of Intensive Dietary Management and author of
3: best-selling books such as The Obesity Code. Normally, the body regulates the blood sugar very, very tightly. So if you eat, insulin goes up, so blood sugar doesn't go too high because it goes into the cells and gets used for energy. On the other hand, when you don't eat, blood sugar should never really fall into the low uh, range because your uh, body activates all these uh, counter regulatory hormones. And these counter regulatory hormones have the effect of raising the blood glucose, pulling it out from your body stores. So some of these hormones include glucagon, um, sympathetic nervous system activation, noradrenaline, and growth hormone. And all of
0: these hormones basically tell our body to start pulling out glucose.
3: So we have several stores of glucose in our body. The most accessible one is glycogen in the liver. So glycogen is chains of glucose sort of all linked together and then stored into the liver. Plants also store glucose.
0: Unlike humans that store glucose and glycogen, plants take chains of glucose and put them all into starch in a molecule called amylopectin
3: then you get this in bread, for example. If you eat bread, you're getting these long chains of glucose which are all strung together. Uh, Humans don't use starch, we use glycogen instead, but it serves really the same purpose. As soon as your insulin starts to fall, then uh, these counter-regulatory hormones tell our body to start breaking down these chains of glucose, which is glycogen, into simple glucose and sending that back out into the blood. Okay, but what happens if we have no glycogen? If we have no glycogen, then we can activate a process called gluconeogenesis, where we use proteins, amino acids, to produce glucose. And in the long term, we also produce uh, glucose from the glycerol backbone of the triglyceride, which is fat cells. So when you have uh, stored fat, it's called a triglyceride. There are three fatty acid chains and a glycerol backbone. You can take that glycerol and turn it into um, glucose. So there are
0: several ways we get glucose when there's none in the diet. We can get it from glycogen stores, the liver can make new glucose from protein, gluconeogenesis, and we can get it from fat
3: cells. Really, you should never have low blood glucose unless you're on medications. However, there is this disease called reactive hypoglycemia where you eat and then a short while later, your blood glucose will plummet. And it's really a disorder of uh, dysregulation uh, between the rise and fall of the glucose and the rise and fall of your insulin. This happens particularly when you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates. The spike in sugar is very very fast and then it goes down very very fast. The insulin is supposed to match that very sharp rise up and very uh, sharp fall down. When it kind of gets a little mismatched then what happens is that Glucose has fallen, but the insulin hasn't really fallen yet. So insulin is pushing the glucose into the cells when it's already too low. And then what you get is very low glucose. You get sweaty. Um, You get all the symptoms of hypoglycemia.
0: And this is exactly what was happening to Annette. She was eating more refined carbohydrates than she thought was okay for her. And as Dr. Fung says, hypoglycemia is a condition spurred on by refined carbohydrates.
3: Predominantly, it's a disease of refined carbohydrates. If you eat very sort of slow carbohydrates or things with a lot of fiber that blunt, that rise, then you typically uh, don't get this mismatch. So one of the key factors in the development of this reactive hypoglycemia is the very um, quick absorption of uh, glucose from sources uh, in our diet. So the main one is wheat and bread. So you have to remember that flour is not a natural substance.
0: Flour is processed from wheat, ground into a very fine powder, and because it's in such a fine powder form, it gets absorbed by the intestines much faster than it normally would. This very fast rise and fall in blood glucose is what causes the problem.
3: So, for example, you see the same phenomenon in illicit drugs like, like cocaine. They grind it into a very, very fine powder and then they sniff it through their nose. And that the reason they do that, of course, is to get the higher high. You want that very fast absorption that you get. Modern flour mills have that ability to make uh, flour very, very fine. So if you ever look at how big these flour particles are, they're minuscule. You, you know this because you can throw flour in the air and it basically disperses into into the air. It doesn't fall down the same way if you throw rice into the air, it will immediately fall down. But the flour just kind of stays there in a big poof uh, because it's been ground so fine. So as we said before, Annette understood that
0: eating sugar made her feel bad. But she really didn't put two and two together that it was all carbohydrates that were causing a problem.
1: So, for a long time, I was eating sort of salads or vegetables or meats or whatever at my lunch, um, but still not having it on the radar that breakfast, lunch, and dinner were all going to be implicated.
0: Does that sound familiar? I'm going to be low carb ish, maybe low carb during the day or no sugar during the day, but at dinner time, all bets are off.
1: And then um, it was only about two years ago, uh, say in the summer of 2015. Um, I was at my parents' place actually having another party week. And uh, I was up, I just was having a nap and I went into the bathroom and I started having this bloody nose. And it wouldn't stop for almost an hour. And my family ended up bringing me into the emergency room and they cauterized. um, And then I was in the emergency room three or four times over the next three or four days. And it turned out that I had critically high blood pressure, talking like over 200. And that's when my doctor put me on blood pressure medication and said, you're pre-diabetic with like my numbers were around seven or so. Um, And at that point I said, you know, I don't want to go on any medication. Can I just see what I can find out and try some stuff? And he was like, okay, and I'm going to watch you and we'll see what
3: happens. And that's sort of when the journey really started. One of the things that is clear is that type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure are very closely correlated. That is, they often fall in the same patients. You have the same process, and they're both part of the metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome is a condition where someone
4: has three out of five common conditions. Abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high serum triglycerides and low high-density lipoprotein levels.
0: And that, of course, was Richard Morris, co-host with me of the Two Keto Dudes podcast. So it's
3: clear that this is a syndrome because all of these um, uh, things, these these five features, uh, tends to occur together, much more than should happen simply by chance. And they're associated with a significantly increased
4: risk of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. This syndrome was first called Syndrome X by Joel Reaven from Stanford in his 1988 Banting lecture. In mathematics, X is often used to refer to the unknown factor in a formula. Dr. Reaven hypothesized that there was one common as yet unknown factor that was the root cause of this syndrome, and in his lecture he proposed that, that factor was insulin resistance.
3: At first, you say, what causes syndrome X? And you say insulin resistance. Then you say, what causes insulin resistance? And that's where it all falls apart. You have 10 different answers from 10 different doctors. I think it's most uh, clear to me that the underlying condition is actually hyperinsulinemia. So high insulin, too much insulin, which leads to insulin resistance. Um, But insulin resistance also leads back to hyperinsulinemia. So it's more useful to me to think about this as a syndrome of hyperinsulinemia. So that if you uh, put it that way, it's immediately useful because if the syndrome is hyperinsulinemia, then the solution is immediately obvious. Therefore, you need to reduce insulin. Okay, so how does hyperinsulinemia affect high blood pressure? and vice versa. There's not a strong correlation because we certainly do see high blood pressure in people who don't have this problem. And we also see high blood pressure in um, you know, very thin people and so on. But there's multiple mechanisms how insulin produces high blood pressure. So insulin, for example, will work on the kidneys to encourage salt and water reabsorption from the kidneys. And by doing that, it increases extracellular volume, which is sort of the amount of fluid contained within us. If you think of the body like a balloon,
4: as you add more water to the balloon, the pressure that that liquid exerts on the inside of the
3: balloon increases. As you remove some water, the pressure goes down. And that's the reason we use diuretics, which are water pills uh, in the treatment of hypertension we've been using diuretics in the treatment uh, uh, for 50 years and they're very effective and sometimes very, very powerful. We see this also very clearly in our dialysis population where we can adjust how much fluid we take off on dialysis. And if you take out enough fluid, uh, people's blood pressures will drop. So it's a very volume dependent phenomenon, but one of the factors that contributes to the uh, increase in uh, blood pressure is this increased um, salt and water retention, Uh, of which insulin plays a role on multiple uh, sorts of of levels. So there's a direct link between insulin and um, high blood pressure, uh, but it's sort of mediated through uh, sort of extracellular volume retention or salt and water retention. So when you give uh, medications, uh, for example, that lower uh, insulin, like the new class of SGLT2s, what you see is a lower blood pressure. If you give um, Acrobose, which is a um, diabetic medication that blocks carbohydrate absorption, what you get is lower insulin levels. And then again, what you see is actually a lowering of blood pressure.
4: This was shown in a paper published in 2003 by the Journal of the American Medical Association entitled Acarbose Treatment and the Risk of Cardiovascular Disease and Hypertension in Patients with Impaired Glucose Tolerance, the STOP NIDDM trial. Here, it was unexpectedly found in a double blind placebo controlled randomized trial that treatment with Acarbose which reduces carbohydrate absorption, was associated with a 34% relative risk reduction in the incidence of new cases of hypertension
3: and a 5.3% absolute risk reduction. So all of these are manifestations of a single uh, factor X. That factor is most usefully thought of as hyperinsulinemia. If I ate a big plate of pasta for supper, it would make me starving an hour
1: later. I would just be trying to eat continuously. And I I never had a question in my mind about why was that? Like it was happening to me, but I didn't understand that it was insulin that was making me so ravenous to really try to stabilize my blood sugar.
5: This roller coaster ride of spikes and drops in blood sugar levels occurs when people follow a diet that's high in carbohydrates and not very high in fat or protein.
0: And that's Megan Ramos. Director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program.
5: All of our food is made out of three major building blocks that we call macronutrients. When carbohydrates are digested in our bellies, uh, they are metabolized as sugar once they reach the blood. And this is true for all carbohydrates. All carbohydrates get converted to sugar so whether it's bread or whether it's a sweet potato or whether it's a piece of chocolate cake um, or an ice cream cone it doesn't matter when it reaches the blood it's metabolized as sugar So what happens when you eat something like pasta and how does that make you hungry like in Annette's case? So pasta is all carbs. One serving of pasta is about 75 grams of carbs on average and no one really eats one serving that's recommended on the box so people are usually taking in two or three servings of pasta and then they're putting sugary sauces on them, really sugary rich tomato sauces on them very often so this is a high carbohydrate meal. So when you eat a lot of carbohydrates, it gets digested, metabolized into sugar and then it's released into your bloodstream. So you get this massive glucose spike. And then your pancreas rushes to get your blood sugar levels down. So the pancreas rushes to produce insulin and release the insulin into the blood so insulin can unlock the doors to the cells to let the glucose in. So insulin's like a key. And the insulin goes to the cell and it looks for the the keyhole, which we call an insulin receptor. And the insulin key engages with the, the keyhole insulin receptor and connects to it and unlocks the door to the cell to allow the glucose to go in. Thank you. So you get this sudden burst in blood sugar levels and you get this massive release of insulin and you get all these cells opening and swelling up with blood sugar and then the doors close and there's no sugar left in the blood and this all happens very quickly. So you go from very high blood sugar levels to very low blood sugar levels in a short period of time. So when you're eating carbohydrates and you're eating them often in, in short intervals throughout the day, you're getting high and low, high and low, high and low low all throughout the day
1: so the very first thing i did was i just took the sugar out like i i and i don't i've never had a big problem with sweets like i've never been a sweets person i've been a you know a french fry eater but i could get take it or leave it with sweets so i just wholesale like cut the sugar out for the first say five months or so so she
0: cut out the sugar sugar but not everything that contained carbohydrates there's a lot of hidden sources of sugar. Here's Peter Bruckner again.
2: There's the obvious, you know, sources of sugar that we all realise. There's the sugar we put in our tea and coffee, sodas, soft drinks. But there's a lot of other sources of sugar that we don't really realise. Fruit juice, for instance, you know, it has a lot of sugar in it. We always sort of, you know, when I was growing up, you know, fruit juice was something healthy, you know. And, and when you look at the amount of sugar in fruit juice, it's it's scary. Energy drinks, um, you know the buzz thing these days for uh, for young people, very high in uh, in sugar. As far as drinks go, you know there are a lot of uh, most drinks have a lot of sugar in them, uh, but then there are also the you know the, the processed foods. I mean, it, it's something like seventy five percent, three quarters of, uh, of all packaged foods have added sugar. Now, the interesting thing is if you look on the label, it often won't say S-U-G-A-R. Uh, the, the, the food industry is very clever. And, and uh, at last count, I think there were sort of 58 different <laughs> names for, for sugar and different types of, uh, of sugar. Uh, anything that ends in sort of O-S-E, or uh, you've got to be a little bit suspicious about. So it's being very careful. You've, you've got to look carefully at labels because uh, the sugar will be there uh, in virtually every, uh,
6: every processed food. So, um, yeah, it's a real trap. Imagine you consumed an eight-ounce glass of apple juice. That's
0: Gary Taubes, an award-winning science and health journalist and author of The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat, and Good Calories, Bad Calories.
6: That eight-ounce glass of apple juice has the sugar content, the sucrose and fructose content, of about four medium-sized apples. So we might have evolved to eat four medium-sized apples when apples were in season about, you know, a month or two a year but we might not eat all four at once and if we did eat all four at once it would probably take us an hour an hour and a half both to eat the apples and to digest the apples and we wouldn't want to eat anything else and that fructose would have to be the the apples would have to be uh, uh digested and the sugars would have to be separated from the fiber and it would take a while for all that that fructose in the four apples to hit our liver now you take an eight ounce glass of apple juice there's no fiber involved you can drink that in I don't know seconds if you wanted to and you're probably going to drink it in minutes um, even if you're not rushing and then that fructose and hits the glucose hits our bloodstream quickly and stimulates immediate insulin response actually that insulin will start being secreted even just when we taste the apple juice or think about drinking it and then the fructose hits our liver in a way that our liver just isn't designed to cope with. And so the way the liver deals with the fructose, the liver cells start converting it into triglycerides, a form of fat, and then shipping the triglycerides out around the body for distribution in fat cells. And as they do this, it starts to become a little insulin resistant. So you have this entire other chain of events that are going on completely independent of the calories. In February of 2015, Annette read a book
0: by Dr. Mark Hyman called The Blood Sugar Solution,
1: which is a really holistic kind of approach to the sugar problem, um, whether it be the diet, the sugar and the carbs, um, stress, um, supplements, um, sleep. There, there's a whole bunch of things that he talks about. So I started doing more of this sort of holistic implementing, and that's when pretty much all the carbs went Um And from there, during that first six months after I started that, I lost my first 50 pounds. So Annette cut the
0: carbs and the weight came off. She was also eating healthy fats, not so much from meat and dairy, which she limited to having on the weekends, but from avocados, coconut oil, nuts, and olive oil.
1: So the one thing that I never got rid of is vegetables. So I always said to myself, if it's coming from a vegetable, I am not gonna beat myself up about it. So I just laid on the vegetables, whether it be salads or broccoli, cauliflower, that sort of thing. Um, I was still careful with like potatoes and things like that. But for the most part, like when I say carb, I really mean bread was out, pasta was out, rice was out, but not vegetables. Um, so that's like one big proviso that I think may, I may be different than other people that you're talking with over the years.
0: I love my green leafy vegetables too. Brussels sprouts under the broiler in a cast iron pan with salt and olive oil. Mm. But are vegetables necessary for good health? We asked Gary Taubes if he'd ever seen science proving this.
6: The official wisdom on this is that the essence of a healthy diet is fruits and vegetables on the plate. I never actually found, in all my research, I never particularly found any good science to back that up, any, any meaningful evidence. But I eat a lot of green vegetables because my mother told me to eat green vegetables. So Annette was doing really well. She cut out the
0: carbs, had plenty of vegetables, eating healthy fats. But one thing she struggled with was artificial sweeteners.
1: I'd had a lot of sweeteners. Like that was how I kind of shored up my feelings of like deprivation, if you want to call it that. I really didn't have a lot of cravings or like emotional attachment to all these foods that I was leaving behind. But you still, I mean, I do have a food addiction. I know that this is true. So you kind of still need need a crutch to kind of get you from one to the next phase, right? So sweeteners were in the equation, and I had a bit of an addiction to sweeteners for a while. Dr. Fung and
0: Megan Ramos explain why artificial sweeteners can be problematic. In
3: general, I don't recommend artificial sweeteners for fasting or really to be taken at all. and the reason is that if you look at the artificial sweeteners in terms of their insulin effect, sometimes it's really just as bad as sugar. Now there's not a lot of data on this, but really remember if you're thinking about obesity and type two diabetes, it's really a disease of hyperinsulinemia. It's really too much insulin. So even if you have zero calories, even if you have zero sugar, such as Splenda or Aspartame or something, it's really the insulin which drives obesity. And some of these have just as much insulin effect. So the sweetness itself may make people crave more. So some people think that that's the reason that they eat more. And it's certainly possible as a trigger for uh, But the bottom line really is to see if these things actually work. So it doesn't really matter what the mechanism of sweeteners is. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So empirically, you can look at the data.
5: I too was addicted to sweeteners. I've even done a little bit of an N1 experiment on myself because I'm able to check my fasting insulin as often as I would like and I've taken stevia and I measured my insulin response to stevia and compared it to a day where at the same number of hours fasting, the the same diet, a macro intake where I haven't had stevia, I measured my insulin response. Now of course it's not a great N1 experiment because sleep and stress and all well, that plays a big factor, but there is definitely an insulin response.
3: What happens when you take somebody and just throw in a whole bunch of artificial sweeteners? Do they lose weight? And the answer clearly is no. If it was the answer, we wouldn't have an obesity crisis. We'd all just drink Diet Coke and we'd all have artificially sweetened uh, drinks. We'd have artificial fats. We can eat all sorts of fake foods. And since there are zero calories in all those foods, theoretically, according to the calories theory, uh, we should all get very slim because we've cut all those calories. Of course, it doesn't work anything nearly like that. In fact, there's a clear correlation between diet uh, soda and obesity, as well as diet soda and heart disease. It's possible that these uh, sweeteners cause more disease um, or it's possible that people who are trying to lose weight tend to uh, eat more of these sweeteners. Either way, the only thing you can really say from empiric experience, that clinical experience, is that these things don't work. And it doesn't matter why they don't work. The answer is that they don't work. So it doesn't um, it, it doesn't matter. Just don't use them. So.
0: After losing 50 pounds, Annette experienced what most of us have experienced after losing considerable weight, cutting carbohydrates, a weight stall, otherwise known as a plateau.
1: So this year, for the first six months, I was completely stalled with my 50 pounds of weight loss. Um, I was, as I say, kind of gorging on like boiled eggs and deli turkey meat and cheese um, as snacks, olives. and I wasn't really making the kind of progress that I wanted to see. Now, my blood sugar has been fabulous. The doctor's been very impressed. I went from, as I say, like a 7A1C down to 5.3 is where I've been sitting for the past six or eight months.
5: Women in particular lose inches and not necessarily pounds. And men lose pounds and not necessarily inches. (laughs) We noticed that men lose pounds, and they see that on the scale so quickly, um, but they're losing pounds pretty much from everywhere but their tummy and their tummies at first. It takes a while to really lower the insulin levels in their system and before we start to see that belly fat start to melt off, but men start losing inches around their thighs and their hips and their arms. And a bit around their belly, but slower around their belly to start. Women lose inches like mad from all over their belly, their waist, their, their hips, their thighs, their arms. They're losing it all over. Um, but they don't see it as reflected on the scale. And I think this is because women, for some reason we've observed, respond a lot greater to human growth hormone production.
0: When you fast, your body has these periods of high human growth hormone, peaking around the 72-hour mark and it stabilizes there. Women seem to utilize human growth hormone a little bit more effectively than men.
5: Very rarely do you ever hear of a man having osteoporosis. Um, But women, because of our other hormonal issues, and also because of the standard North American diet, we have real bone mass density issues. There's so many people nowadays, just over the age of 30, who have been diagnosed with osteoporosis. I actually found out I had osteoporosis the day before my 30th birthday. Talk about a birthday present for me. So women, we utilize this human growth hormone really effectively.
0: So the idea is that human growth hormone goes up, bone density goes up, at the same time, you're gaining muscle mass, and since muscle and bone are denser than fat, the net result? Women lose inches, but not so many pounds.
1: But anyways, I wanted to see more progress, and so that's when I started really focusing on Dr. Fung's work about intermittent fasting. So that was since last August or so, where I really started using that, and Within the first, um, say, six weeks, I mean, 20 pounds just disappeared.
3: So one of the things that has not been used for a long time is this um, intermittent fasting. So if you look at the history of uh, fasting you see that people have been doing it for many thousands of years and it was no big deal as just part of religion or as part of uh, culture or what what have you. However um, starting about 30-40 years ago uh, just probably actually just after World War II there was this enormous push against uh, missing a meal ever. And it was driven largely in part by the food companies. So um, there are the snack uh, food companies that, for example, began to get the bright idea that, hey, if you're trying to sell food, it's really hard to compete at breakfast, lunch or dinner because there's lots of people there anyway. So Cadbury in the United Kingdom decided that they would start um, advertising that, hey, it's a good idea to eat a snack after school or so on. The theory they were promoting was that snacking is good
4: for you because it reduces hunger, which, so the theory goes, means you'll eat less
3: and gradually over time what used to be considered fairly bad nutrition and bad practice so for example in the 1970s when i grew up uh, just about nobody ate after school snacks everybody who tried to get one said no one we don't have snacks in the house and two you're gonna ruin your dinner so forget it so that was kind of that so people ate three meals a day and that was it Uh, Because of this sort of uh, persistent advertising to people, and a lot of this advertising is insidious, so not just ads to consumers but also uh, sponsoring dietitians, sponsoring physicians to go out there and start promoting this idea that snacking is really really good for you. Over many decades from the 50s down to the 80s, there's sort of this increasing idea that eating is going to eating more frequently is a good idea. If you eat smaller amounts more often, do you end up eating less? This idea has never been proven. In fact, it's not true at all. In fact, the more frequently you eat, the more the, that you generally eat. And this is not really hard to understand. That's the reason we have appetizers. The, it, a little bit of food can stimulate the appetite because it gets, you know, this saliva flowing, you start thinking about food and that kind of thing. And once you start thinking about the food, then you're going to get more hungry. So this idea that you can eat a little bit, you know, cut the hunger and then you'll eat less later is really completely wrong, like 100% incorrect, exactly wrong.
4: So when dieticians tell us to eat more smaller meals,
3: doesn't that mean we'll eat fewer calories? It's the total opposite. If you eat more frequently, you're going to generally eat more unless you rigidly control your portions. Um, but in, even then, you're going to be leaving yourself hungry, which is very difficult to do. That is, you can eat um, and leave yourself hungry, but it's not easy, it's not fun. You want to eat until you're full. So eating more frequently is a really, really bad idea people uh, started to say that, well, there's all these problems with fasting and so on. And again, without any real evidence that this was true. So you should never skip a meal, never skip breakfast and all these, uh, you should eat six times a day. All of these ideas started to take hold until you get to sort of 2017, where the whole idea of even missing a snack is sort of makes people go into fit. You know, it's like, oh my God, you missed your breakfast you're going to die sort of idea and if you were a dietitian and you said that it's okay to miss breakfast you're kind of ostracized it was uh, just ridiculous like I'm not sure what people thought was going to happen if they missed a single meal Um, and the answer of course is nothing so as physicians we tell people to fast all the time sure You have to
0: fast before a colonoscopy, you have to fast before
4: most major surgeries, and before blood tests as well. Fasting is a normal part of your day. You fast when you sleep, and when you wake, you break the fast. Which is why the first meal of the day is called breakfast, or
3: break fast. And remember, the word itself, break fast, breakfast, is acknowledges that fasting is simply a part of everyday life. It's the flip side of eating. You want to make sure your fasting and your feeding stay in balance. Um, And and, and this is really the idea. All that happens during your fasting is that as insulin falls, your body gets the signal to start burning some of that stored food energy.
0: Humans store energy to be used later on as either fatty acids stored in triglycerides or glucose stored as glycogen in our muscles and liver.
3: That stored food energy is in the form of glycogen or body fat. In either case, it's good. If you've stored too much glycogen or if you've stored too much body fat, then hey, this is a great chance for you to use some of that. That's why you store body fat, because it's not there for looks. It's there for you to use if there is no food available. So all you're doing is giving your body a chance to use the food that it has stored away from sort of previous meals. And what is more natural than that? In fact, there's nothing more natural than that. Instead, we start doing these completely artificial things, such as eating six times a day, snacking all the time. All we can start thinking about is food because we're like, oh my God, I need to snack, I need to snack, I need to eat, I need to snack, I need to eat, I need to snack. And then it's like, oh, hey, I wonder why I'm not losing weight. It's okay if you miss a meal, your body can handle it. Your body knows what to do with that. Will you get hungry? Yeah, you might get hungry. You might not get hungry. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it's okay. You can handle it. So how long can we go without eating? One pound of body fat is approximately, it's not exactly, but approximately 3,500 calories. So for most people, one pound of fat will actually last two days. And most people have far more than one pound of fat. So you could, if you are 30 pounds overweight, you could fast for 60 days and be fine. The world's longest fast was 382 days. So there are nuances when you're doing longer fasts and so on. But the general idea is if you're doing short fasts, is certainly less than 24, 36 hours, hey, it's okay.
0: I guess we didn't evolve to require three meals and three snacks every day.
3: Let's turn back the clock to the 1700s. You're a peasant, you're in the field, you're working. Do you think they're snacking six times a day? They're breaking at 1030 to go inside, make themselves a little bit of uh, oatmeal or something, and then get back out there? No, they just worked from sunup till sundown. Uh, a, a lot of people never ate breakfast. Breakfast for many years was considered something of a luxury, it was something for the upper classes, the, the lower classes just didn't, didn't eat breakfast because, well, there was no time, or they ate breakfast and didn't eat anything until they came back in from the field, sort of at nighttime. And guess what, it was okay. And you don't have these metabolic problems because now, of course, that excess body fat is not just something we don't want, but it's also making us sick. It's causing all kinds of diseases. But the good news is that we can let our bodies simply take care of itself. We can let our bodies burn off the body fat, but you got to let it do what it's supposed to do. you got to use the fat the body fat for what it was meant for was, which is for you to use when there's nothing to eat. So don't give yourself anything to eat. Instead, what you want to think about is letting your body eat that body fat for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And that's the way to think about it. It, it wasn't that
1: hard. Um, it, it there was some adjustment to it. Like for me, I was just cold whenever I would start a fasting day, like halfway through the day, I would be freezing cold.
4: There may be an explanation for that cold feeling when fasting, and it all has to do with brown adipose tissue. Heating the blood on the way to your brain is the job of deposits of a special tissue around your collarbones called brown adipose tissue, or BAT. This is special fat tissue that actually uses available energy to make heat. After warming your brain, that blood makes its way around the rest of your body, and so that feeling of warmth or cold may be affected by how much energy we are spending in our BAT. Our bodies continually adapt how much energy they use based on how much they have available, and it seems that heating is one of the uses of energy that is optional to immediate survival, and so when our metabolic rate drops, we feel cold, and when it rises, we feel warm. One study Jason mentioned in last week's show on non-scale victories was the Leibel et al 1995 study that showed as people restricted their calories coming in their metabolic rate can drop by as much as 500 kilocalories. Now fasting is not necessarily caloric restriction but the amount of energy we have to use when fasting is based on how much body fat we have which gives up its energy at a fixed rate according to Alpert 2005 A limit on the energy transfer from human fat store in hypophagia. If you have 10 pounds of body fat then you can generate 315 kilocalories per day which would be a state of significant caloric restriction. If you have 60 pounds of body fat by contrast you can generate 1890 kilocalories per day and now we're talking about a pretty adequate amount of energy to fuel your day. This may be why some people when fasting feel cold.
1: But I find it gets easier and easier. And so now I'm at the point where I can do, cause I'm still on this path. Like I still have progress that I need to make to get to a healthy body weight. So I am trying, you know, at least a couple days a week of intermittent fasting. And I find the more I do, like the more I can just kick right back into it, uh, get right through it, not any problems, no, no cravings, no hunger, and just be totally fine with it. One thing that's
0: different for Annette than the other IDM patients we've talked to so far is that salt wasn't really a problem for her.
1: Nobody's ever told me, you got to watch your salt. Even when they put me on blood pressure medication, they still never said, you have to watch your salt. And I'm a big salt plate person. You can ask anybody in my family. I'm a huge salt fan. Um, But at the same time, I'm not eating a lot of crap. Like, I'm not opening up a can of soup for lunch and eating a bag of Cheetos and, you know, where all the salt is, like, just buried in those products. So even though
0: she was used to salting her food, she did notice that if she didn't take a little salt during a fast, she felt off.
1: Megan has I've heard her say a couple times uh, in different scenarios that people were not eating enough salt and it was and it was kind of hindering their ability to be successful with the fasting. And so like even in the past couple of weeks there was a day or two where I had not like I want to do an intermittent fasting like every other day sort of thing during the week and of course something pops up and it just doesn't happen. So a couple times I tried to do two days back to back. And I'm actually just breezing through days like that. But there is a point in the the middle of day two where I'm feeling like something is just a bit out of sorts. And I just think back to Megan saying, think about salt. So I just take a little salt and you know what? It does fix it.
0: Seems like we're going to end every episode with take your salt. You can't get away from it. So let's recap. Blood sugar, check.
1: High blood pressure, check. But how much weight did she lose? Um, I have lost uh, exactly, almost exactly 100 pounds.
0: Check. I love happy endings, don't you? Yet another awesome human saved by the keto fasting lifestyle. Congratulations, Annette. You rocked it. And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code Podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto, LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.